0: We are in Wolftown, distant past to 1977. In pictures, some of my ancestors and my mother's and my father's sides are so light-skinned as to look white, and some are so dark the lines of the nose, a mouth, look silver in the black and white picture. They wear long-sleeved, full-white shirts tucked into dark skirts and muted cotton shirts tucked into loose pants. Inevitably, they stand outside in these pictures, but the backgrounds are so faded one can only see trees like smoke behind them. None of them smile. My grandmother Dorothy tells me stories about them, says some of them were Haitian, that others were Choctaw, said they spoke French, that they came from New Orleans or a nebulous elsewhere, searching for land and space, and they stopped here. Before DeLille was named DeLille, after a French settler, the early settlers called it Wolf Town. Pine and oak and sweet gum grow in tangles from the north down to the south of the town, to the DeLille Bayou. The Wolf River, brown and lazy, snakes its way through Delisle, fingers the country in creeks before emptying into the bayou. When people ask me about my hometown, I tell them it was called after a wolf before it was partially tamed and settled. I want to impart something of its wild roots, its early savagery. Calling it Wolftown hints at the wildness at the heart of it.
1: That's Jessamine Ward reading from her memoir, Men We Reaped. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Jessamine Ward has made the Mississippi Gulf Coast and its bayous and rural communities her literary terrain. Her two novels, Where the Line Bleeds, and the 2011 National Book Award winner, Salvage the Bones, are set in the fictional gulf town of Bois Sauvage. Both novels gave texture and voice to poor rural black Mississippians struggling against the brutality of racism and poverty. Jesmyn Ward takes up this exploration again in her third book, perhaps with more at stake. It's a memoir called Men We Reaped. Men We Reaped is Jesmyn's attempt to understand the deaths between 2000 and 2004 of five young men who were close to her especially her beloved younger brother Joshua. Interwoven with chapters about each young man is Jessamine's own story. Her growing up and coming of age as her family moved from their own house to their in-laws to a trailer. Her parents' marriage collapsing, the family in poverty. But the love the family has for one another is as fierce as its losses. And the land might yield little money, but it's verdant, lush, and smells of home. Once again, Jessamine Ward uses her formidable literary skill, forcing us to confront the lives and hearts of people who get trapped by circumstances and at times by their own choices. I spoke with Jessmine Ward recently and asked her what motivated her to write Men We Reaped.
0: I think that I knew from the time that the events happened, you know, so from 2000 to 2004, when I was living through it, I knew that it was something that I'd have to write about one day. I just didn't want to, so I kept putting it off and putting it off. Ten years passed, ten, twelve years passed, and then it felt like the right time to write it. Part of the reason that I wanted to write the book, one of the many reasons that I wanted to write the book, is because... I felt like the story that I was invested in telling, so the story of the loss of my brother and the loss of the other young men and the questions that I I was asking about, maybe why that would happen, I felt like that, that story and those questions maybe weren't being asked and those stories really hadn't been told. So I really felt a great responsibility to be the one to tell, those stories and bring them to a wider audience in the hope that they could begin to contribute to a discussion around these issues and maybe lead to some sort of change.
1: Now, on the face of it, the deaths of these five young men really didn't follow the same pattern, but you write them as being absolutely linked together Mm -hmm. by basically coming from the rural South, Mm -hmm and being shaped Mm -hmm. by race, and Mm -hmm. being shaped by poverty. Mm -hmm. Yes. When I began working on the book, I mean, I had a general
0: outline. You know, I think that when I first began writing the memoir, too, I didn't realize that part of what a writer has to do when they write a memoir, that that writer has to look at the past and look at whatever they're writing about and make judgments about it and assess it and provide some sort of context and make connections and I didn't realize that and I don't think that I realized that until maybe the fifth or sixth draft of of the book that I had to identify that thread that tied each of those young men together right that tied their their deaths together and that also tied us to them and then once I realized that I had to do that and I began working through the book again, which that was, of course, that was the hardest revision because it required so much hard emotional work. But at the same time, I had to be sharp intellectually. I had to be very clear. I had to look at the past and the present and come to some understanding about how You know, the history of poverty and racism and classism and the regional history of the South, like how all those things really influenced and led to these young men that I knew and loved dying. It was difficult, but I think, you know, after revision, after revision, after revision, after revision, I mean, I might have done at least 12 revisions of this book. By that 12th revision, I finally understood what I was saying and it was a relief because I think understanding that I saw a pattern, you know, and that I saw that poor black people that live in these rural places. And then I think black people in America, period, constantly are exposed to this message that they're worth less, right, that their lives are worth less. And so I think that you know by the end of the book like I saw that you know and I understood that that was the case and then I saw the way that the constant bombardment of that message affected black people and specifically the young black people that I knew and myself while I was living through that time and I internalized that message and then I acted out in ways that confirmed that message and but it took a lot of work for me to get to that point where I sort of discovered my version of the truth, like my truth, that was based on my memory and my recollections of what, of what happened in my, my, I guess my childhood and my adolescence in the American South.
1: Well, let's talk about the structure of the book because I think the structure might have enabled you to be clear-eyed about where you wanted to go. You have two timelines, your own story going chronologically from past to present, While every other chapter is a story about one of those young men, Mm -hmm. but those chapters move from the recent past to the more distant past. Why structure the book this way? Part of what I'm trying to do there
0: is I'm trying to provide the reader with some sort of context so perhaps they can understand why an epidemic of young black men dying in the rural south would happen. So at the very beginning so when i was working on a an outline of the book that's the structure that came to me i alternated chapters that moved from the past and then forward through through time like through my childhood and up through my adolescence with chapters that actually moved backwards in time from my last friend raj who died so that my brother's death is actually the last death That occurs in the book, even though in actual life, he was the first young man that died. And I didn't understand why I'd chosen to do that until, you know, I was uh, sharing the outline with friends of mine who are writers and we were discussing it and we were talking about the structure. And then one of my friends says, well, it makes perfect sense to me that you would want to write the story this way because you want to end at the heart you know, you're ending at, at the place that for you has the most, most emotional impact. And when she t- said that to me, then it made total sense, you know, because I, I knew that it would be a hard structure to make work, and so I had doubts about it, and I thought, well, maybe I should just write the story chronologically, right? So just work from the past, and then, you know, write forward into the future. But as I was thinking that I should do this, it felt physically wrong. I don't know how to explain it. It was like something inside of me balked at that. And then when my friend said, well, you know, you want to end at the heart of things, you, you know, you want to end with your brother. When she said that, that really clarified things for me and made me understand that that's why I needed to tell
1: the story in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Where do you go from there? Yes. Yeah. Even as a reader, yeah. where do you go from mm-hmm. there? Why a memoir? You're known as a fiction writer. Your novel, Salvage the Bones, won the National Book Award. And it sat in that same community looking at poor African-Americans living on the Gulf Coast. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: when I thought about my friends and about their deaths and about my upbringing and my family, I just thought, I can't fictionalize this because no one will be able to suspend their disbelief because I kept running into that in my life. I mean, outside of workshops, I never wrote many stories in workshop, writing workshops that I attended that were really very autobiographical. My fiction is informed by the place where I come from and the community that I grew up in, but there aren't many like one-to-one plot correlations between my life and my experiences and then my characters' lives and my characters' experiences. So I knew I had to tell this story and I thought, well, you know, I could fictionalize it. But then I thought, no one will believe it. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll read the, the very beginning or they'll get halfway through and they'll realize what's happening with all these young black men dying one after another. and they'll go, This would never happen. This doesn't make any sense. And so I, I knew that I couldn't tell it in a novel. I just, I couldn't. And then, too, I think a part of me wanted to um, honor the young men. And and I think part of me really wanted to honor my community and honor my family by writing about them using the creative nonfiction form and I guess telling their stories in a very truthful, straightforward manner.
1: You made a a decision in this book that you were not going to present these young men, nor yourself, as saints, Mm -hmm. that you were gonna show exactly who they were. They're not saints, but they're not that throwaway headline Mm -hmm. that we read either. Mm -hmm. Talk about that decision. And then I'm really interested in the way the community and your family reacted to that. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, to answer the first part of your question, I mean, I think that in the dialogue or the conversation that happens around you know, young black men dying young, young black men going to jail young, young black men dropping out, you know, young black men making bad choices as far as being a part of the drug trade. In that conversation, that, that to most people outside of the families or of the communities where these young men are, they are throwaway headlines, right? They're stereotype. The people in that part of the conversation, they don't, they don't see them as human beings, you don't get right? Past that. No, you don't. You don't see them as like complicated human beings with histories, and with dreams and aspirations and and struggles and all and of heart. those things. Yes, and heart, exactly. But then on the other end of that spectrum, right, in this conversation, then you have the members of the young men's families, right, and especially when young men die then there's that immediate response by the family, because it happened in my family too, and this is how I know it, but there's the immediate response by the family to make them into saints, right? To make them into saints, you know, the lingo around this culture of death, of young black people dying, Immediately, they're called angels. You have t shirts, they have halos around them, and the common saying is, They're an angel and they're watching over us now. And you know what I'm saying? It's very much about making them into saints, which I think dehumanizes them in another way and robs them of their complicated humanity. And so, I did not want to do that. You know, I wanted to be as honest as I could about the lives that they led and about the life that I led at the time. And I wanted us to live on the page as complicated, unique human beings so that the readers, you know, when they encounter these young men, when they encounter me as a young person or my parents or or my brother or my sisters, you know, that they see us as people. So we're not saints, but we're also not just deadbeat dads or welfare queens or teens who get pregnant or teens that sell drugs or you know what I'm saying like it was very important to me to to make every one of the characters that I that I really write about as complicated and as unique and as real as as possible because that's the way that you begin to change perspective that you have to you have to humanize your characters in in your art especially if if you're a writer like me, who is writing about a community, I think that has been largely absent from American letters. And so it's very important to me to humanize them as well as I can um, and really make them live on the page.
1: I think that's exactly right. It's almost as though you can say, "cells crack, don't mm-hmm. have to think about mm-hmm. it. And you can just keep on going yeah
0: I mean that's why that that I talk about that often right that discussion that I had with my brother that I write about when he was 14 and he told me that he was selling crack writing this book was was very hard for me because on every page I was asking myself that question or I was saying okay I have to tell the truth right that's part of my contract with the reader right because I'm writing a memoir but how much of the truth am I going to tell and so if I choose to tell this fact about this conversation that I had with my brother, where he revealed to me that he was selling crack when he was 14, what does that accomplish? So every time I came to a place where I had to make a hard decision like that, where I had to write something that could potentially be damning about someone that I knew or someone that I loved. Especially your brother. Yeah, especially my brother. Like I had to figure out, okay, there has to be some sort of purpose in this. And so when I got to that moment, I found the purpose in it, and I did it. Some of the family members of the young men, some of my family members my immediate family members especially my mom this process has been really difficult for her it's been difficult for them because like I said earlier I know that they that you know my family members family members of these young men there's that trope right of you know, now they're resting in peace. They're angels, and the people that we love that are gone, they're in heaven, don't speak Ill right? Of the don't dead. speak ill of the dead. Exactly. Um, and many people do not like that I shared these these secrets.
1: The way you talk about your parents are indicative of this too, because your father had a lot of charm and a lot of personality and pizzazz, but he also didn't have a great deal of responsibility. And your mother compensated by being distant, probably because she was always working. And again, that can be conveyed as the kind of stereotype, Mm -hmm. but you write them out of it. Mm
0: -hmm. I think there were things about my parents that I did not understand before I wrote this book. The memoir form required me to assess and offer some sort of judgment and some sort of context. And so when I was writing about them, like, they weren't just my parents anymore. They were young people once with dreams and ambitions and who made good decisions and then made bad decisions sometimes. And I had to attempt to figure out why my father decided to leave or what was it in him that pushed him away from the family that he'd made? You know, what was it about his existence at that time that led him to do what he did and to feel as he did. And the same thing with my mother. I think, you know, my mother, she was always there, right? And so my mother was not only the caretaker, but she was also the disciplinarian in my family, right? So it was even harder, I think, for me to write my mother than it was for me to write my father because it was very hard for me to see past who she was as my mother and to look into her past and really um, see her as a, you know, complicated, complex human being you know see her as a young woman who again once had dreams and aspirations and things that she wanted to do with her life and then to look clearly at what happened to thwart those dreams and aspirations and then what that did to her I mean it was difficult for me because because she's my mother, and I think in ways, writing about your mother, sometimes that can be the most difficult thing that you can do.
1: Especially for a daughter. Yeah, for
0: a daughter. But but I think it was difficult for me, too, because, you know, I love my mother very much, so it was hard for me to think about who she was as a young woman and think about the ways that the world Bore down on her and crushed her and I, as the writer who is like writing about my mother, but in the book, my mother is a character. I loved her, I wanted to take care of her. I wanted to make all those things that had happened to her, change them and make everything right. But I, I couldn't do that, right? First, because it's memoir, it's not fiction. Yeah. And second of all, because part of my responsibility was to be honest and to be clear-eyed about what had happened to
1: her back to the way you portrayed yourself this really isn't the characterization of the scholarship girl who makes good Mm
0: -mm. (laughs) no I mean I was very naive when I was younger you know and I think that that's apparent in the book but I think especially that once you know I lost my brother and then I began losing my friends it was very important to me to be honest about the way that my grief and that sense of loss the way that I coped with it it was very unhealthy and I had to be honest about that because I think that this isn't an original thought at all, but in America, we have a complicated relationship with death and with grieving. I think it's hard for us to talk about. And even where I'm coming from, like even in this community, and this culture where... There are these rituals around death, memorial t-shirts and the, the repast and these gatherings memorialize the dead. And so there's a culture, but it doesn't speak honestly about
1: the sense of loss and that sense of grief. The other complication is the complication of place, mm-hmm. where you describe this place and it is lush, and you can feel the heat on your face and the sense of community you have with your family, with your friends, and yet the poverty mm-hmm. and the racism mm-hmm. and the hopelessness mm-hmm. and the sense of being beaten down, both things being true, and you're drawn to it, mm-hmm. and you pull away, mm-hmm. and you're drawn to it. Mm-hmm.
0: It's complicated. I mean, you're drawn to it and you're repulsed at the same time. Right. And, you know, because I live in my hometown now, I decided to move back. And so everyone always asks me, why did you why did you come back? And so when I answer them, I always say there's something about this place, about the beauty of this place where I think that I feel more myself and and I think more at home in that place than anywhere else that I've ever been. And I think that that's because of the landscape and and maybe because there's a sense of the familiar and it's comforting. But then at the same time that I can acknowledge that, I I also know that there's much, you know, as you're saying about Mississippi, (laughs) about the South in general, that I hate. There's much about it that I find very problematic. And I'm also vocal about the fact that when I leave Mississippi or leave the South and I travel to other places, it feels like there is a palpable weight that I don't have anymore that I can shrug off when I leave. It's hard for me to be articulate about it because it's a feeling I don't know how to communicate what it feels like but there's definitely a change in feeling even though i know racism is everywhere classism is everywhere there are different types of oppression and they occur everywhere but that specific peculiar like combination of oppressions that occur in the rural south i feel them and it's a relief when i can go to another place and i don't feel them but for better or worse this is my home this is my community. These are the people. And this is the place that I have chosen to dedicate a large part of my life to writing about you raising your and daughter? to exploring. Yeah. And I'm raising my daughter there. So, so that's what it is. And that's where I am. And I hope that my choice to return to home and to live at home as an adult, I hope that, that just that, may change things in some way. First of all, I feel like I'm there to fight the good fight. And second of all, I think that it changes this expectation that we all have. And that I had when I graduated from high school too that to be successful, it means you need to leave Mississippi. You need to leave the South. You need to go somewhere else. You head north, right? <laughs> and, and I think or that to New Yeah, or to, New, or to New Orleans. I mean, I think that that has, you know, that's been the case. We have been telling ourselves that story for a long time. And so I want to push back a little bit against that and maybe through my work perhaps create a reality where that doesn't have to be the case and where maybe I am an example of the fact that you don't have to trade your home, your sense of home and your family for some sort of elusive success that can only happen somewhere else. that You can only grasp somewhere else. I don't want that to be the case.
1: Now you've lived in other places. Yes, I have. Do you find that having lived in other places and then coming back gives you a different perspective? Definitely does. I
0: mean, because I think that, especially before I left, that I wasn't aware. I was just talking about that weight of history and of oppression that you live with all the time when you are a person of color in the South. And I didn't realize that until I left, until I went to California and and studied at Stanford for undergrad, and then, you know, to New York, and then to Michigan, and then back to California. And And so leaving was useful because it allowed me to realize that. It allowed me to realize that that oppression existed, I think. I mean, I knew that it existed before I left, and it was part of the reason that I wanted to leave. But I didn't have a clear understanding of the way that history in the South is bearing down in the present. So I had to leave in order to understand that and see that.
1: The title, Men We Reaped, why this title?
0: It's from a quote by Harriet Tubman, where she is talking about a Civil War battle that featured a a black battalion. And so she says, I'll read it. It's a great quote. It is a great quote. So she says, we saw the lightning and that was the guns, and then we heard the thunder and that was the big guns, and then we heard the rain falling and that was the blood falling, and when we came to get in the crops, it was dead men that we reaped. So that's where I got the title from, right, Men We Reaped. I read that quote and I thought, first of all, the imagery in it is just so astonishing. And then second of all, I thought it tied in so much of what I saw in the book and of what I thought it was the book was about. And also, I thought that it nodded to history. And so I hope maybe signal to the reader that this isn't removed from our experience. This history, this legacy of slavery and of Jim Crow and of one people consistently being devalued over hundreds of years, that lives in the present.
1: You did very well, I thought, with the epigrams, because you have the Tubman, which Mm -hmm. does give this historic undercurrent. Mm -hmm. And then you have Tupac, Mm -hmm. which brings it more To the, not quite Mm -hmm. present, but I'm dating myself, Mm -hmm. but. No, it feels present to me too. (laughs) That's why I wanted to use it. And then you end with Easter morning. I always
0: wanted to use a Tupac quote specifically in this book. I knew that that was something that I wanted to do. And especially that verse, it's a lament. You know, I mean, Tupac is talking about his peers dying young before they even have a chance to, a chance to grow.
1: You have to read it now. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Young adolescents in our prime live a life of crime. Though it ain't logical, we hobble through these trying times. Living blind, Lord, help me with my troubled soul. While my homies had to die before they got a girl. And that's from Words to My Firstborn by Tupac Shakur. And then I that quote from Easter Morning by A.R. Ammons. I was actually looking for another quote to use at the beginning of the book and then I came across that poem and I and I read especially that part and I thought, "Oh my god, this poet was expressing the truth of my experience, but yet it's their experience, but yet" It speaks to me, and so I read it, and I, I have to use it. This is so perfect. I have to read it. <laughs> yeah,
1: please do. It's so beautiful.
0: I stand on the stump of a child, whether myself or my little brother who died, and yell as far as I can. I cannot leave this place for for me. It is the dearest and the worst. It is life nearest to life, which is life lost. It is my place where I must stand.
1: It's interesting because I read the epigrams before I read the book. Mm -hmm. And then when I ended it, I went back Mm -hmm. and looked at them again. Mm -hmm. And oh my God, they were just so powerful. The way they made it complete. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Jessamyn Ward, thank you so much for giving me your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a wonderful (laughs) book. Thank you. That was National Book Award winner Jessamyn Ward. Her memoir is called Men We Reap. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Water's all round my door